Well, let's jump into Mark today. 15 weeks in the book of Mark. This is our last two weeks. Today, we're going to be talking about God and government, a topic that not lots of people don't like to broach that topic. Probably not my most favorite thing in the world to talk about either, but we're going to deal with it because it's in Scripture. And then next week, we're going to talk about the greatest commandments that Jesus gives in the last part of the book of Mark. And then we're going to take a break, right? We're going to come back to Mark around Easter. And in October, we're going to have a series devoted to perspective and spiritual sight. And so we're going to answer four main questions about ourselves. Uh, Scripture is so important to me, but it's important that we have the right perspectives and lens when we're looking at things. And so we're going to answer these four questions. How do I rightly see God? It is so important that we know that. Number two is how does God see me? There's an important understanding of how God sees you. And then, how do I see the world? And the last question we're going to answer is, how do I see others? And so we're excited about that series that's going to be coming to us in October. But let's just jump into Mark 12 today as we talk about God and government. Maybe you're in here and never had a, a whole conscious a lot of conscious thoughts about how, as a Christian, I go about living inside of government, how I go about being political. I think Jesus' words are going to bring us some implications today that I think will speak well into our lives and how we do well in this area. And so let's just go ahead and jump into our text today in Mark 12, starting in verse 13. It says this, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. This is about Jesus. They're trying to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But, we, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Jesus, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. They marveled at him. And so we have just walked through what is the third confrontation that we've walked through in just the two chapters that we've been in the last few weeks in, in chapter 11 and 12, three confrontations that we find from the high priest, the scribes, and the elders, they are like amping up their efforts to find a way to arrest Jesus and get rid of this guy. Uh, last week, we talked about Jesus cleansing the temple, and they were upset about Jesus using his authority to get rid of things that he thought were wicked in the temple. And shortly after, we see them come to him and they challenge his authority then. And then Jesus tells this he just like tells this story that just condemns them to their face. He's just that kind of bold. He talks about this, the parable of the vineyard, the talents, uh, where, where there's a farmer who creates a vineyard, and he then leases that vineyard to some local owners, and then he moves away to another country. And then at harvest time, he sends some representatives back to get the harvest, and the local farmers beat him. He said, no, we're not going to give you anything. Sends another crew, same thing. And then he eventually sends his son whom they kill. And so this is a story that Jesus is telling them, a parable, to say, this is you. God has sent you prophets and teachers to reveal the word, to reveal truth. They, they are sending you me, which you're going to kill. You're about ready to kill me. And the Pharisees know that, that he is speaking about them, and they are not pleased 
about it. They are irate, and they want to find a way to arrest this guy, uh, to get, to, to just be done with him. Isn't it fascinating? I, I just think it's fascinating how Scripture is going to bring two, uh, two groups of people that, that are uh, opposites of each other. They're going to bring them together um, in some way. So Mark 12 is the third conflict, the second in- initiated by the Sanhedrin. Uh, they send this group of people, the Pharisees, and they send uh, the Herodians. These are two different people, and they're going to ask Jesus about religion and politics, and so it's going to be controversial for sure. Uh, may- maybe you've been to a family get-together or like a party, and, and somebody brings up something political, and you just, okay, here we go. Maybe you cringe a little bit. Oh, are we going to get into this right now? Maybe, maybe you're the type of person, your Uncle Bill comes in, he starts something up, you're like, okay, <laughs> let's watch this. Give me some popcorn. Maybe that's your type of, you enjoy those political discussions. But anytime you bring up one of these subjects, you're going to find an interesting debate. People have strong opinions, do they not, about religion and politics. And if you just asked about one thing, you're going to find yourself in some trouble possibly, but if you ask how the two relate to each other, then you're just setting yourself up for some fireworks. And so that's what we want to do. We want to set ourselves up for some fireworks today and see how these two entities, politics and religion, fit together and how they don't fit together. Because this is exactly what the Sanhedrin is trying to do with Jesus. They send this group of people called the Pharisees and the Herodians, and right away we know that something's fishy here. Because these two groups of people, they do not like one another. The Pharisees are kind of these conservative law teachers. They're kind of grass-rooted of the people. And then you have the Herodians, who are kind of the elite. They lean towards the political power of the day. They're called Herodians for a reason, because they're in the court of King Herod. Herodians. King Herod is the appointed ruler of the vassal state Judea under the Roman Empire. Herod is a Jew that has been made a king but has a Roman authority. And so these are Jewish people in his court that lean towards the Roman crown. And so they do not like each other. This would be like getting people in like the Donald Trump camp and the people in the Bernie Sanders camp and just bringing them together and coming to Jesus. They don't have a lot in common. They don't like each other. But what they do have in common is that they don't like Jesus. And so... Their enemy is my enemy, that whole thing. And so they come together and approach Jesus and they ask him uh, this question. But before they do it, they, they, they begin with flattering him. Just a great way to approach our Savior. I'm just going to give you a bunch of compliments here. Teacher, you're not swayed by appearances. You're a straight shooter. You're fair and balanced. You don't dodge difficult questions. I mean, have you ever felt somebody come up to you that that maybe you don't know well, or maybe you know, and you're like, ah, I'm a little easy, uneasy about this person, and they've tried to feed you a bunch of compliments, you kind of get that, okay, wh- what's going on here? And we see this in Jesus. He doesn't have a feeling. He knows that something is up because they're going to try to lay a trap here. They're setting a trap up for Jesus. They're trying to push him in the corner uh, to make him say something that's going to make it easier for them to do their jobs. And so they ask him this question, Should we pay taxes to Caesar? It is not a sincere question. This would have been a question that they crafted in some back room scenario because they knew that this question might give Jesus some trouble. But immediately Jesus sees the hypocrisy. And he says, why are you testing me? I don't know if he's angry or frustrated. Maybe he just felt sorry for him. Like, okay, we're doing this again. You're going to try to bring some other scenario into this. 
You're going to put me to the test, really? Okay, let's go. And so the, the, Jesus knew that they were trying to set a trap. And, and, and the, they knew, Jesus knew that if he would have said yes to paying taxes to Caesar, then the people would be upset. About 20 years prior to this, the Roman Empire had set up a tax on all the people in their realm. It was a yearly tax, and the, the, the Jewish people hated this tax. They hated this tax. And so the reason that Jesus had not been arrested to that point was because he was so popular amongst the people. And if he would have answered that you are, yes, to pay your taxes, the Pharisees know that the people are going to be ticked. And it's going to make their job easier to arrest them. And, and this is probably why these two groups of people, these Pharisees and the Herodians, have come together. Because if he answers that you should pay your taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees are going to run up the crowd here and, and make a big scene about this. But if he says that you shouldn't pay your taxes to Caesar, then the Herodians who are present are going to go tell King Herod, who's going to tell the Romans, and the Romans are going to come and arrest Jesus. And so they think this is a win-win scenario for both parties that hate Jesus. And so they try to trap him in this kind of trap. But like, Jesus ain't being trapped by anybody. Like, he is just masterful at undoing traps. He's like that sneaky mouse that steals the bait and, the bait and doesn't set up the trap. He would be probably really good at that board game mousetrap. I think Jesus would. I don't know if you played that as a kid. I, I, didn't, I didn't play the game. I just played with the stuff. I don't know how that game worked, but I think Jesus would be really good at that. And so Jesus asked for a Daenerys, which would have been a, equivalent to a day's work. So imagine somebody giving him $100. This is equivalent to a day's work. And they hand him a Daenerys, uh, and it's, it's just a coin. This is what a Daenerys would look like. We still have these today. We, we have collections of them. And so on one side, you'd have Tiberius Caesar. He's the emperor, the Caesar uh, of Rome. And then on, he's on the throne on the other side. And, and then there's an abbreviated inscription around it that would say that, that he is divine, that Caesar is divine. He is a high priest in stature. And so the Israelite nation hated this because it's blasphemous that you would put a man on a throne and say he's divine. And so they didn't want to pay the tax because this was blasphemous to them. And so Jesus asked these men whose likeness whose, and inscription is on the coin, and everybody knew it was Tiberius Caesar's. And then he utters one of the most famous sentences, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and give to God the things that are God. And this for us is a loaded statement that lays out the foundation for the Christian perspective in politics and government. It doesn't sort out every problem that we have in the areas of politics and government, but it doesn't tell us how to vote or who to vote for, but it lays a foundation for us to understand how we are to operate in this world as we are subjected to worldly and earthly authority, how we are to operate inside of those. And so today we're going to pull, pull out four implications that we see from this text. There are probably lots of things that we could talk about in this area, but there are four things that are undoubtable. These are things that are stood up, they would stand up to interpretation. These are things that God would expect of us and has expected of us. And so we're going to walk into those today. And so those four things are this, uh, just to give you a little basis on where we're going today. Number one is God has called us to be good citizens and don't feel like you have to get these all in your bulletin right all, all, all of a sudden uh, right now. We're going to come back to these. 
He's asked us to honor God and the government. He wants us to understand that God's people aren't tied to one nation. And the last one is that we owe our ultimate allegiance to God. And so those are the areas that we want to walk in today. Those are the implications that we see in this verse. But first, I want to clarify a little bit of Jesus' mission and intentions as we rub up against this idea of politics and government. And so just understand that it is wrong to try to prescribe Jesus in any political system. I've heard people say that, well, of course, Jesus is democratic, or Jesus is a socialist, or Jesus is a communist. Uh, I just think that those conversations are futile and fruitless. Like, Jesus is well above all of that. He's not defined to any political system. In fact, Jesus is just revolutionary. Like, he is here to bring righteousness to his creation. He is a precursor to God's redemption and restoration of all things on this earth. That someday, God is going to come again, and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth right here. And all of us who trust in faith in Jesus Christ on this earth, why we live, we're going to be there. And, and you're not going to, if people aren't going to be there because there's some political class or title or status, or status uh, you're there because of your faith. And so it doesn't matter political systems. It doesn't matter status. It doesn't matter title. Jesus is over all of it. He is establishing a new kingdom. And so in this day, Jesus would have been under the authority of Rome. Right? He would have been living in the Roman Empire, and it was a tyrannical rule that came from Rome, a tyrannical rule. And yet Jesus, understand this, he never led a rebellion against the Roman Empire. He never rebelled against the Roman Empire. He wasn't crucified because he was an antagonist to the state or to Rome. He was crucified by his own people. Jesus never operated in those types of political activities. And there's a valuable lesson that I think that we need to hear in that. It doesn't mean that we're not activists speaking for the voice, voices of those who don't have voices or, or standing up for the things that honor God or, or the things that God desires. But what we have to learn is that there's a right way and a wrong way to go about doing those things. There's a right way and a wrong way to do those things. As Christians, we believe that we have truth, rightly. You have rightness on your side, but there's a wrong way to handle that. I heard a pastor, Matt Chandler, on a video say that, that to be right the wrong way is to be wrong. We can't justify using the schemes and the ways of the world to, to make our points valid and come across. We are to confine and look in Scripture for how we are to act in this area, how we are to go about being activists. There's a right and there's a wrong way to do that. So there's valuable lessons in understanding what Jesus came here to do. Listen, you're not a corrupted or conquered people. And sometimes it may feel to you that you're conquered in some ways, that there's a, a rebellion that you might need to be solicited. Listen, guys, the battle's over. The battle's over. You've already won. You've already won. The, the rebellion has already happened. Christ died on the cross for your sin. He has made righteousness and access to God available to you. You are a sojourner, a foreigner, a, a, a wanderer, a stranger that has a, the king in heaven named Jesus. You are, the, you are the son and the daughter of a king. You just now physically live on earth in these bodies. Spiritually, you belong to Christ. There will be a day where physically and spiritually we will be united with Christ in presence and in spirit on this earth. 
someday again, and that will be a great day. But because we have a king who has already conquered, who has already won the battle for us, guys, we can relax a little bit. And we can approach this world as conquerors and, and through love and gentleness and respect, share our points of views, active, be activists. We can, by surrender, self-denial, and sacrifice, show who Christ is because we don't need to win anything. We've already won it. There is the hand of God working throughout this time and the times to come that is going to, to bring him the victory and us the victory. And you can be guaranteed that he is going to fulfill his plan. He's going to make it work. And so we can do things the right way. Not the wrong way. We can do things the right way in politics and government because we're not conquered. We're not oppressed. Maybe it feels like that. We got a king that sits on a throne. What is this world going to do to us? We have an immense treasure in Christ. And so these Herodians and these Pharisees are going to try to set a trap for Jesus. But in Jesus' teaching, he gives us some thoughts to live by. Number one, we are to be good citizens. We're to be good citizens of this earth. That's the first thing. That's the most simple thing here. Even if you think your government is bad, even if you think it's corrupt, we are to be good citizens. You know, Jesus, when he, when he speaks in Mark 12, he's just a few days away from being killed. He's a few days away from being killed, which will be by the hands of the Romans. The Jews give him to them. And in 70 AD, the Romans come and they destroy the temple. They destroy the temple and they kill some of the apostles, the disciples that we read about. They killed hundreds, if not thousands of Christians in their time. And before the cross, they, they swatted and thwarted rebellions from the Jewish uh, nation. And so Rome is not this, they're not a feel-good state. Like, this isn't like, these are great people. I mean, we've got a lot of great technology because of the Romans. There's some good things that they gave to us. They're, they're not a people that just made it their job to persecute others. They, they did it when they felt like they had to. But I, but I say that for you to understand I don't care what you feel like the political climate of today is. I don't care if you have a distaste or a dislike for politics and government. I'm telling you this. You've got it better than, than they had in Rome. You got it better today than they had it back then. Way better. And so we can be good citizens and give to God or give to Caesar the things that he, that are his. We can give our government the things that are his, like our taxes and our time and our efforts to be good citizens of this earth. Paul writes about this, and he speaks the same thing in Romans 13. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And so what that's saying is like, you were designed to be ruled over. I know that that sounds harsh, that I, nobody puts baby in a corner. Like you, you were designed to have structure and law because you would go chaotic if not. That is God's gift to you. Right? Government is instilled philosophically from a loving God to his people. Right? It says, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God. That's God saying, like, hey, we, I put them in charge. 
attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Paul is saying, owe no one anything. And to clear, to clear here, he's not talking about your mortgage. He's not saying you can't have a mortgage on your house. He's saying you ought to make your payments. Don't owe somebody when it's due. So if honor's due to the government, to the emperor, give them honor. If taxes are due to the state, pay your taxes. Don't leave out what you owe. Be good citizens, even if you think your own government is corrupt and foolish. Be good citizens, even despite that reality. I, I know some Christians who say that I, I, don't, want, I don't owe them anything. And they, they, they don't want to give taxes because they don't believe that the government is supporting causes that they believe with or agree with. But listen, Jesus didn't use that logic here. He didn't say that. You're, you're under obligation ethically to pay your taxes. It's your ethical responsibility of being a good citizen. You are not culpable, culpable for how your government spends their money. And the great thing for us in a democracy is that we get a vote every year on how our government spends our money. And so we are to be good citizens, pay our taxes to those that we owe. And with that, we are to live in the world as our government instructs us to. We are to live in the world as our government instructs us to in all areas that don't contradict God's commands and God's heart. And so we should be full of the fruit of the Spirit in everything that we do, in all things that we do, every way that possibly we can to, to have love and peace and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. We are to be a witness to our heavenly king, that everybody might see in us the light of Christ and give glory to God in heaven. And so let us, as good citizens, let us be the best volunteers in this community. Let us be the best local officials in our government. Let us be the best community leaders, the, the best moms and dads. Let our light shine as good citizens in a foreign land that people might see the witness that we have for our Savior. The second implication that we find in this is that we are to honor God and the government. We're to honor God and the government. Understand that human authority, listen, is a legitimate authority. I know sometimes we have a hard time with it. I don't like that authority. Human authority is legitimate authority even when it's exercised poorly. And this goes along with the previous statements. The reason that we pay our taxes, the reason that Christians are to be good citizens is that God himself instituted government. It's never perfect. Mostly it's tragically imperfect. But it is a gift. Have you ever thought of government as a gift? Maybe you put that on your Christmas list. You know what? I just need government this year. It's like a warm blanket for me. But it is a gift. I mean, think about all the chaos that we've seen in the Middle East on the verge of just spiraling into just chaos and disrepair. Anarchy is always worse than monarchy. <laughs> Anarchy is always worse than democracy. It's always worse than all of those things. And so understand that government is a gift from a good God to you as imperfect as it feels in the way it's 
kind of lived out. For it provides for a structure and rules and laws that keep his people safe and flourishing. And so know this, that allegiance to God and allegiance to your country is not inherently incompatible. Uh, sometimes I think people, I, I hear a lot from my college friends, is that, you know, we are not to love government, that we are not to love our countries, that it's wrong to put our loyalty in anything on this earth. But Jesus shows us here that it is honorable and possible to honor Caesar and to honor God the same way. Not in the same way, but it's possible to do both. When Jesus tells the people to pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he, he means that you have duties to your country and your state and your government that do not necessarily infringe on your duties as a follower of Christ. It is a possible for us to have some allegiance to an earthly authority and remain free in our heavenly authority because our heavenly authority is instituted, earthly authority. That's what Romans 13 implies to us. However, there are times within our government that civil disobedience is the right course. There are times where it is accepted for us to stand up for the right things the right way. When our government opposes the laws of God and the conscience of God, we must always side with God. Always side with God. But we must do it in a way that holds true to our scriptures. If you can't be an activist and a voice for the voiceless and not look, and not look like Jesus, then you probably need to ask yourself lots of questions. Because we can't justify using the world's tactics and the world's way to get our rightness and our truthfulness out there. It's the wrong way. You can't use the weapon of the world. You are held to a higher authority in heaven. And we have to look like our Savior. We have to look like our Savior in our disobedience. And so we are to live and honor our government as much as possible, as long as possible, as much as possible, because that's the way God designed it. That's the way that God has designed it. You can have authority or allegiance to an earthly authority with a clear conscience with your higher authority in God. It is possible, friends, to be a good Christian and a good American. It is possible to be a good Canadian eh, and a good Christian. It is possible to be a good Filipino and a good Christian. Patriotism isn't innately bad. Sometimes it flows into the area of idolatry, but it is not wrong if you cry over the national anthem. You're not exchanging your love for Jesus for something else. The third implication that comes from this passage is this, is that God's people aren't tied to one nation. God's people aren't tied to one nation. When Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, he's saying this, essentially, you can support a nation, you can be a part of a nation that does not formally worship the one true God, Christ. True religion is not bound to one country. Maybe we always just think that God blesses America. But no, he blesses the world by his righteousness and holiness and gloriness or glorious. The church is, is, is transcultural and it's transnational. Uh, Mark Dever, who's a pastor at uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., he, he writes this about this passage in Mark. He says that, that Jesus approving of paying taxes to Rome was revolutionary. 
By this, he shows us that the the legitimacy of a government is not determined by whether it supports the worship of the one true God or even allows for it. By Jesus not requiring those who would follow him only to support states which are formally allied with the one true God, as in the Old Testament with Israel, Jesus unhitches following him from any particular nation that we can say to the church is international. So understand that Christianity is not uniquely American. It's not uniquely a Western religion. You're not going to find the word America anywhere in your Bibles. The events in Scripture mostly took place in the Middle East. That's where Christianity began. It moved to Europe. It centralized in Turkey for a long time. And we've said this over the last few weeks, uh, that, 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 that God is always moving in this world. He's always on the move, and seemingly the message of the cross is always moving towards the vulnerable and the meek in spirit, and it is always moving away from power and pride that corrupts it. Christ, God, always on the move. It is not tied to one nation, and so this is why you hear me say this phrase a lot. You understand that you are a citizen of heaven first, and a citizen of nations and states second. You are a citizen of heavens first, and a citizen of state and nations second. When Christ died on the cross, he made, Christ, he made God available for all. He gave access to all by faith in Christ. Previous to that, salvation was carried in the Israelite nation by the temple. But on the cross... Jesus, through an act of mercy and grace, eradicates all of that to save sinners just like you and I. He took all of it away to give you access to God through him. And so wherever you live, wherever you go, you have one king, and his name is Jesus. And I don't care if you live on an isolated island someday by yourself or you live in another country, your king will remain the same. We honor our government, but our king always remains the same. And that's our last implication here, is that we owe our ultimate allegiance to God. And so, so far in this message, we've kind of looked at that first half, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. And now I want to look at give to God the things that are God. Until this point, you might say, well, Jesus, man, he seems really pro-government. He's conservative. He's siding with Rome on everything. But look carefully at this text. Jesus clearly says that Caesar and God are not identical. That there are some things that belong to Caesar and government, and there are some things that belong to God. Human people, uh, government is run by humans, which means that it's going to be influenced by sin. It's going to get corrupt. Sure, biblical principles uh, are within government systems. I I think in America we have definitely some biblical principles. I like uh, checks and balances because we know that absolute power corrupts people. We have a way to make sure that people don't have too much power. But as created beings, friends, we gravitate towards idolatry. We gravitate towards worshiping things on this earth. And in that, our government gravitates towards power. It gravitates towards power. And it just becomes an entity that just kind of flows through all things. And Without knowing it, sometimes we believe that government is God, that it is the thing that's going to fix all of our situations. It is going to be the thing that's going to make everything right in our life. But government does not have divine authority like God does. It doesn't matter what country you're from. 
even if you're from Finland, which I hear it's great over there, your government is not divine. Our allegiance to state and government should never be absolute. We should never just willy-nilly do whatever they say. On the other hand, our allegiance to God is resolute and absolute. It never changes. We always hold fast to what Scripture has for us. We're al aligned to Scripture. And we see this in our text. I mean, we look in Exodus, in the story of God's redemption of his people out of Egypt. The midwives refused an order from the king of the time, Pharaoh, to kill the babies. We see this in Peter, who is told to quit preaching about this Jesus guy. He doesn't listen. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, is thrown into the lion's den because of how he prayed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not worship the king, and they were thrown into a fiery furnace. We have to always have our ultimate allegiance to God, giving God what is due, and then giving Caesar what his due is. And so in this verse in, in 16, Jesus asks, whose likeness is on this coin? And the Greek word for likeness is icon. It's E-I-K-O-N, icon. It sounds a lot like our English word icon, right? And it, the word means image. The word means image. And the same word used here is the same word used in our Old Testament in Genesis 1:26, when it says that let us make man in our own icon, our own image. And so what is the likeness of Caesar? Well, taxes, honor, and respect. But what belongs to God? You do. You belong to God. Caesar gets some coins, but God has the right to all of you. If somebody would ask you, whose image were you made in? Whose likeness were you made in? How would you answer that question? You were made in the image of God. And you are to give to God all that belongs to him. All that belongs to him. And so we give ourselves wholly to God who has made us in his image. We give our lives to God because we owe him everything. We owe him everything. And even, listen, even if your image feels decayed, and patina like that coin on the screen. If, even if you feel like you're just rusted and burdened and ugly, like you're still worth God's attention. He made you in his image. He wants you. You're his, and he wants it to be returned. I, I used to, with kids, I used to, get a $100 bill, and I, I used to wad it up, and I would spit on it, and I would step on it, put it under my armpit, and then I would, I would whip out, and I'd say, who wants this $100 bill? Every single kid raises their hand. Why? Because that $100 bill still has value, even as messed up as it looked. And the same is true for you, image bearer. Even though you may feel rusted and ugly, you are still worthy to God. You're still worth something to him. And so the question that I want to leave with you today is what am I holding back? If you are the image of God, the likeness of God, 
What are you holding back? It is an offense in this world to withhold taxes from the U.S. Treasury. How much more offensive is it to withhold what is rendered to go to the one who made you, to the king of the universe, the one who has stamped his image on you? You might find it easy to hide a few things from the IRS, but we can never hide from our God. I'm not saying that to be creepy as God's looking, to, but you cannot hide your stuff from God. And so have you put your complete submission and hope in Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered to him? Have he made you in his image? His inscription is written all over you. So have you come to Christ? Have you surrendered the fight of trying to control all the stuff in your life that you think that you need to handle? And rent, but instead, just render that to God. Give it to God because it belongs to God. Give God his coin. You, image bearer, give him you because he loves you and he wants you. And you're worth the price that he paid. And so I want you to consider that as we enter into a time of worshiping our King, praising our God. What are we withholding? What are we not giving to our image creator? Our, we, as an image bearer, what are we not giving to our creator, to God? And so let's stand together and let's worship our King. We'll invite the prayer team to come up. If you have anything that you need prayer about this week or just struggling with things, we invite you to join us.